Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 20, Letting Go of Codependent Patterns. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction and the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Ariaga and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we'll hear my interview with Ashley, a woman who traces the roots of her codependent patterns back to early childhood, who married someone with an addiction, and who learned through this experience to move away from those codependent patterns and into a healthier way of seeing and caring for herself. In her interview, she talks about how she made these changes and how she now works to help others do the same. We'll hear that interview after a quick message from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. I'm really happy to introduce our guest, Ashley. Ashley is someone who has been working to spread the message of recovery for family members. This is, of course, our mission as well, because family members are underserved and under-resourced and often don't even know that recovery is available to them. So Ashley, welcome to Addiction in the Family. Would you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Well, I do have to agree with you on what you said about this whole area and community being very underserved. You know, when I was going through my kind of searching for different, you know, material and stories from other people, I didn't really find a whole lot. But as far as my own personal story um, is concerned, I had, um, you know, just a normal childhood and everything. I, mm, I don't know, got into contact with, I guess, addiction as a whole, just through media, like, you know, movies, TV shows, the random person who had like an alcohol problem. You know, I never really saw anything else like particularly heavy. I didn't really learn that much about this whole community of people, recovery, any of the issues that are dealt with people who have addiction until I met my now husband. Uh, we met in 2013. And we kind of, you know, started out with our friendship. And through that, he told me that he had issues with addiction, with um, different substances and whatnot. And it was from there that I started doing my own research. Um, I found a Naranon meeting, but it was on the East Coast. I am on the West Coast. So that was interesting trying to dip my toes into that. Um, I didn't really have a lot of other resources available to me at the time and since it was on a different coast than I was it wasn't as personal as I would have hoped it would have been so I didn't really enmesh myself with that very much but I realized as the years went on and I did more research I actually found out that I had something called codependency <laughs> which was something that I didn't really like to acknowledge for a long time either but I learned that basically in my childhood um, my parents both worked a lot, so I would spend a lot of time with my grandparents. They almost became like a second set of parents to me. 
And unknown to me at the time, I was really little, maybe around six or seven, my grandparents were actually in the middle of going through a divorce. I was very close with them, uh, particularly my grandfather. I would always wait for him to come home from work. We would always hang out. It was a thing, you know, just like a little, I would always, you know, enjoy hanging out with them, both of them and everything until one day, didn't come home because they were going through their divorce. But I assumed that since we were so close, that had something to do with me. And so I actually internalized that. It changed my personality to be more quiet and reserved. And I carry that with me through you know, my teenage years, young adulthood. And so when I met my now husband, in a sense, kind of like latched on to that relationship and that friendship. You know, I really wanted to be the one that saved him. I wanted to be the one that was there right by his side as he finally conquered his addiction. And, you know, I was the one to thank for that. I wanted to feel like I was useful and wanted. And I felt like in having that, it would kind of like, you know, set me up in a position to where, you know, it would be impossible to lose him because, you know, I cared very much about him, you know, like even just through only a friendship standpoint, you know, I really enjoyed having him in my life. And if I presented myself in that way, you know, it would make it, like I said, less likely for me to lose him. In going through the whole process of learning about addiction as the years went by and he would enter recovery and then, you know, relapse again or go through periods of just sobriety without the recovery aspect of it and then relapse. That caused me to do a lot more searching for different materials, for different people's perspectives, learning more about myself. And, you know, finally it took up to this last cycle for me to finally figure out, okay, you know, I finally figured out what worked. And it was none of the things I thought that worked before. You know, it had nothing to do with finding the right treatment plan for him or finding the right this for him or whatever. It finally had to do with how I approached the situation and how I kind of took care of myself and focused on myself in relationship to his addiction. It had nothing to do with, you know, me trying to be the savior and save the day. And from then, since, you know, I had finally found what worked for me and I'm realizing that this was such an underserved community and there were probably lots of people out there who were <laughs> searching for answers and help and just someone who understood what it was like, I wanted to share my story too because I had joined an actual Naranon meeting um, in 2019 and that was really nice. But I had just figured that, you know, if there's tens of meetings, you know, of NA and AA meetings in any given city, there should be, you know, an exponentially large amount of Naranon meetings because all the loved ones and friends and everything, there should be a ton of them. But there was only one and there was only like four or five people that would attend on a regular basis. You know, just with me sharing, I'm like, I know there's Naranon and everything, but like, I wanted to do what I could to share my story and also share the importance of it not just being the person with addictions issue. Like we as loved ones also have our own responsibilities and how we handle it and how we take care of ourselves in the process. And, you know, just setting ourselves up for success as well. It's not just all about them and their problems and everything. Like we have a responsibility as loved ones, as partners, as spouses as well. And so that's what I've been doing since then. (laughs) That's fantastic. And I appreciate you sharing all that. Mm-hmm. You talked about Naranon, which is one of the recovery fellowships by and for family members, but some of our audience may not have heard of Naranon or know much about it. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on what that organization is and what drew you to it? Yeah, so there is Naranon and there is Alanon. So Naranon focuses more on the loved ones of those with um, like a narcotics addiction, a drug addiction, whereas Al-Anon is for the ones with alcohol issues. Now, personally, I really enjoy the literature of both groups. I have a daily reader from Naranon and also from Al-Anon. I just so happen to attend a Naranon meeting because while my partner has had issues with both alcohol and drugs, it was more of like a drug thing. That was the more prolific thing that he was dealing with. And so, yeah, so that's just for anybody um, who knows somebody with an an addiction problem, not just for spouses, not just for partners, be parents, friends, coworkers, anybody who knows somebody with an addiction issue or an alcohol issue, you prefer to go to Al-Anon. 
I started doing that when I first met him. They do have both in-person and online meetings. This one was a, an online meeting because it was on the East Coast. Yeah, so it was just where we would share our own experiences and then we would kind of, you know, touch on other people's issues, share our experiences from their specific issue, you know, just kind of go back and forth on that. And it wasn't until I actually went to an in-person meeting in 2019 that I really got a sense for what it was because there was it was a little bit impersonal just doing it only through it wasn't even through voice it was just chat <laughs> the meeting that I went to and before and that was it was a little difficult because I, I didn't know that much about the program at all so having to kind of learn that while also just doing it through chatting was a little difficult but the face-to-face -face meeting was really nice. They gave me, you know, a newcomer packet that gave me, you know, some basic information about what it was. I actually had a Naranon literature book from his mom because she had been going to those towards the beginning of its addiction. She wasn't attending towards the later years, but I had had that. And yeah, it was really welcoming. They kind of like, you know, showed me what to do. I didn't have to immediately share if I wasn't comfortable. When I went to the first couple meetings, they let me have my time to kind of get comfortable with the whole situation, the whole setup. The meetings were every week, so I would go every week. And finally, I felt more comfortable to share as the weeks went on. And it was there that I found a sponsor. And my sponsor worked through the steps with me because it, it really does follow the structure of a NA meeting or an AA meeting where you have, you know, you can have a sponsor, you go through your own version of the steps. And you really do have that same sense of, you know, community. You can call any of the members, you get their phone numbers in your welcome packet, but you can call any of the members if you ever feel like you're struggling at any given time, which I had called my sponsor quite a few times. <laughs> with my own uh, issues that I was dealing with and different crises and everything. But yeah, I really do like the Naranon meetings. It kind of got a little bit difficult because my home group was located in the city that I was living in. And then a year or so later, we actually moved. And then plus with COVID, you know, the face-to-face -face meetings had ended and we were able to do Zoom and uh, phone calls. And so that was nice, but then, like I said, just with the difference in city and with my work and everything, I wasn't able to attend as much as I used to, but I still talk to my sponsor and I still do find that they're a very good source of support and I really do appreciate them. I feel like they really did help me a lot. So I would definitely, you know, suggest Naranon meetings to anybody who is curious about that. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing that. Especially because a lot of family members would say, I'm not the one with the problem. Why should I have to work at this? And thus not see the point or maybe even resent the suggestion that they should get involved in a recovery fellowship or otherwise work on their own recovery. Did you have those thoughts and what might you say to someone else currently thinking that? Oh, yeah, because at the beginning, I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, you have your issues, we're going to get through it together. But then as time goes on, you know, I would build up resentments and I would just, you know, see the whole situation from a limited perspective. And I would just think like, well, I don't have any issues with drugs. I can, you know, have a glass of wine every now and then. And it's not going to be something that I just, you know, drive into the ground, you know, like I am able to live life completely normally. And it's you that has the issue. You are the one with the drug problem. You are the one that needs to get help. And yet you won't do it. Why do I have to do something like this is not my responsibility, but it does have a lot to do with my behaviors and my actions too, because like, while I do not have the drug problem, I still can behave certain ways within the dynamics of our relationship that is unhealthy. Obviously, as they say in Naranon, you know, like I didn't cause it, can't cure it. That responsibility is not on me, of course. But like I said, it's just the way that I interact, the way that I would see myself as a savior or as the person who was going to fix all the problems or how I would lack the empathetic aspect of it to where I would just see him as one with the problem. I would sort of demonize him in that situation and I would kind of cut off the opportunity for support, for me to offer support to him, for me to offer, you know, a safe space of you know support and love and you know the kind of environment that somebody in that situation would need and when i don't have the resources to take care of myself that just makes things a lot worse for me too even outside of the relationship because i have no way to in a healthy way process my resentments to process the feelings that i have the anger that i have the misconceptions that i have about certain things and if I just keep that all bottled up, it'll just come out in different ways 
in my relationship. It'll come out in different ways, just to the people that surround me and the, you know, my support system as a whole. It led me personally to isolate myself. I became a much more negative person. It really took away my ability to hope for better things on any level in my life. And so once I found the different places that I could go for help, like Narnon, or the different resources that I could find for myself, and even then once I really started my recovery and started my blog, just to have an outlet for that as well, and have the hope that I could help other people who were going through the same thing, that's really what made the difference and allowed me to gain that different perspective and understand that, you know, like he wasn't a bad person, he was just going through stuff. And that if I chose to stay in the relationship and I chose to stay just to be around him as a loved one and a support system that I had to be able to look at it through, you know, a more empathetic and understanding standpoint to make it work and have it be a healthier dynamic. Right on. Now, if I can circle back around to something you said earlier, You said that you didn't have awareness of addiction in your life until you met your husband. Looking back with adult eyes, do you recognize addiction in any other family members now, especially knowing that addiction can show up in ways other than chemical use, such as gambling, sex, food, spending, etc.? Not in my family, no, not personally. Although, you know, I did hear stories about um, different relatives that were little bit removed from me like you know maybe aunts or uncles that I hadn't really talked to that much but it was interesting that after having gone through this experience that it kind of like opened the door a little bit for discussion of like different people that I may have known maybe it just wouldn't have come up naturally as a topic of something between like my parents and I like after having him be in my life I was like oh yeah you know did you know that so-and-so also struggled with this or even like friends of the family we have close friends and, and now I'm starting to kind of see their behaviors. And while before I might've just thought that it was just their personality, now I kind of see the different aspects of it and you know, the different mechanics of how they are as a person. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe it isn't just their personality. Maybe they do have an actual issue with alcohol and, and it manifests as different things. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I don't want to be too specific about, you know, these certain people, but my point is that, yeah, my point is is that I can see, you know, how these different things come into play now and also seeing how their partner relates to it and everything. It's, it's very interesting now to see those different dynamics come into play. Well, what sort of things catch your eye now that maybe you wouldn't have noticed before? Well, like with this one, um, it has to do with alcohol. And, you know, before I would just think like, okay, you know, maybe they just like to have a good time. I don't know if it's, you know, necessarily a bad thing for them to drink just to relax or whatever, but it was just excessive. It seemed like they would need alcohol in order to have a good time at all, or even to just function. Like it wasn't just a glass of wine or a drink after work or at a party or whatever. It just seemed more than that. I would notice that they would act out in different ways that were very contrasting to how they would be sober. And I would find that their partner would kind of like either dismiss the situation or kind of downplay it a little bit to kind of like minimize the embarrassment. And so it was just little things like that where I'm like, okay, maybe this is a little bit more serious than they're letting on. And (laughs) so things like that. So with your own husband, when you met, you would not have had that same awareness, but you said he talked to you about his addiction issues. What was the state of his addiction or recovery when you met? He had actually recently relapsed. And so he was at the point where, like once we started getting closer as friends, that was when he was starting to look into different treatment centers to go back to because he was realizing that it was getting out of hand. And so that was when he shared because he knew that he was going to have to go to a treatment center around that time. And so, of course, then, you know, me, the one who wants to have all the answers, I would take it upon myself to then call different treatment centers, which, you know, it's really difficult because I would call and they'd be like, okay, if you're not the person seeking this, we can't really give you a whole lot of information, but I would still try. Like, yeah, I found this rehab and I found this rehab and, you know, give them a whole little list and all the details, but yeah. (laughs) So how did that go? Yeah, he was like, yeah, no, it's okay. I already found one. You don't need to do that. But 
I would still do it. I would still, you know, do as much as I could or, or buy him groceries and all these kinds of things. And the funny thing is, looking back, he never specifically asked for any of these things, but I just uh, took it upon myself to anticipate what he might need. So I could have just asked, but no, I had to be the one to figure it all out. <laughs> A lot of people fall into that. You talked earlier about how much you were impacted by your grandfather leaving and how that probably started the ball rolling on the patterns you described as your codependency. Have you noticed if there are broader family patterns like that that may have been passed down and which were then exacerbated by that sense of abandonment? I guess for me, I kind of try to step away from analyzing things like that too much, at least for like the people I'm around all the time. I don't like to get too much into that. I can very easily do that. I just try not to because I know myself and I know how I'll start forming opinions and stuff. And then I get too wrapped up in my head. But um, looking back, like through the eyes of me as a child, not really having like a whole lot of background information, I really did internalize the whole situation. And after talking with my parents and my grandparents afterwards, you know, they were doing it from a place of love. You know, they didn't want me to understand that much about what was happening because they didn't want to have me be hurting because of that situation. But in their attempt to kind of shield me from that, it, it made me come up with my own answers to things or my own reasoning or my own rationalizations, which is how I came up with that. Well, okay, uh, we have a really fun time together. And, you know, I love going over to the house and they love hanging out with me. And now uh, one of these random times, you know, with no prior warning, he just doesn't come back. Well, obviously it's gotta be me, <laughs> you know, like through my, my young eyes, like that was what I thought. I'm like, well, clearly I am the only common denominator. So that was me. And so, you know, carrying that as I got older, it made me withdrawn. I didn't really like to have a whole lot of friends, especially of the opposite gender. I did not go through normal milestones that normal peers would go through, you know, like having the first boyfriend, having that first kiss or that first relationship. I intentionally would shield myself from those things because I did not want to go through the whole feeling of loss and devastation coming from that. Even if it was something, you know, as trivial as, you know, a teenage boyfriend, I just did not want any of that. And so I, I really do think it was something that I developed on my own because of the thing that I went through. Because my siblings, they didn't have any of that like I did with my grandparents or anything similar. And so they don't have any of the same things that I did. I kind of felt a little disconnected from them in that aspect and just, you know, as a whole. But it was just something that I went through and processed it in young adulthood. <laughs> well, this brings to mind a question. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you want to tell her? I would want to tell her exactly what happened through the perspective of a, of a kid. You know, like, obviously, I wouldn't get heavy into details, but just the point of like, yeah, you know, like they just had their problems and it has nothing to do with you. And it's funny because that kind of perspective that I was thinking like, well, how would I want them to deal with it for me is actually what I used for our own child. Like me and him, we have a daughter and he would have cycles of sobriety and using as she got older and stuff, like when she was little and then she got, you know, toddler stage. And as she became more and more aware of her surroundings and what was going on, I kind of had to think about that. Cause I'm like, okay, how am I gonna frame this to her? Because I don't want her to think of things the same way that I did. Like if he goes off to a treatment center and I don't explain what's happening, is she gonna internalize that the same way that I did? You know, I, I would hope not, but I really don't wanna take that kind of chance. So I did make sure to explain to her what was happening. You know, like Dada is sick. He is going to a doctor. And, you know, we're going to keep talking with him. We will visit him. We will talk to him as much as we can. And we're going to, you know, hope that he gets better. And it would just be something along those lines to where as much information as I can, but not too heavy on the details that it's going to like confuse her or upset her or, you know, anything like that. So yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I did use that same idea as to how I would communicate with her, you know, through what would I want if I was in that situation? <laughs> And how old is she now? She is now five. <laughs> and it's something that we're actually still able to talk about to this day because, you know, he hasn't been to a treatment center in, you know, almost two years. But it's still something that, you know, she will have like a random memory come up and she'll be able to talk about it and we can talk about it with her. And 
you know, we're able to talk about it with smiles on our faces. It's not something that is like this dark period from her childhood. I feel like we were able to be transparent enough with her that she feels comfortable talking about it even now, even though there's nothing currently happening. If she ever thinks about an old memory or has like, you know, something she ever wants to talk about, it's something that's very easy to do so with her. Ashley, I have to say that it's really wonderful that you were able and are still able to talk that openly with your daughter. I have to say for any of our listeners who aren't sure how to talk about these issues with younger family members, that as a therapist, this is the approach I recommend. When people ask, do we tell the kids? How do you explain something to like someone being in treatment? I say put it in terms that kids can understand. But Ashley... Looking into the future, there is another conversation to be had as your daughter grows older, because addiction is about 50% genetic. Have you thought about how to discuss this with her as she moves into an age where she is more vulnerable herself? I want to carry that same principle going forward. I just want it to be as open as possible. I want it to be, you know, kind of like with anything that, that parents might be uncomfortable talking to their kids about. I want it to be just like that. You know, like whenever the time comes to start talking about that, I want it to be where both me and my husband are there. He can share as much as he can within the kind of guidelines of what her age is at, but share, you know, how things were for him and, you know, make sure that she is able to make wise decisions, but not be so overbearing that it's going to cause the opposite reaction. Because, you know, I have given some thought to how things will be on many levels when she is older and Judging by how free-spirited and strong-willed she is now, I can only imagine that that will be quite a challenge. But but yeah, I do want things to be as transparent as possible. I want her to be able to feel free to come to us with any questions she might have, any concerns, any you know safety issues or anything. I just want it to be completely open because that's how we've done it so far. And so I, I really do want to carry that into the future because I feel like we have a good foundation going forward on any topic, especially this one. That's <laughs> no, never too young to establish a good foundation. Yeah. And I know with our daughter, who is now 25, I sat back and thought, you know, my addiction was off and running by the time I was 10. So by the time she was 10, it was time to sit down and have a conversation and just say, hey, this runs in our family. There are some genetics behind it, and here are some things you can do as protective factors. We talked about some of the underlying principles of recovery fellowships without telling her she needed to go and do what we were doing, or she needed to go join a group. But we tried to take some of the ideas from the groups and said, here are some things you might try in your life. Fortunately, she took us up on some of those things, and while she certainly has had her own struggles around mental health and things like that, she's managed to avoid having an addiction. And even though her issues showed up in a different way, it seems like some of those foundational concepts and tools from recovery fellowships, especially those aimed at family members, have been helpful nonetheless. I think it's a wonderful and very important conversation to have within the family. Yeah, and I think so too, like with, I feel like maybe society as a whole is getting better with, you know, even just topics of mental health and therapy, but we're also very open with the fact that we still go to therapy. Like, it's just something that we do just to make sure that everything is good. And we're just, you know, like maintaining a car, you know, like I'm not just going to take my car and when it has a huge devastating issue, I want to make sure that, you know, we take it in to get oil changes and whatnot. It's kind of like that, you know, we keep our therapist that we've had through the roughest of the rough times and we just see him once a month. Um, just to make sure everything's going good and we're very open about it. Everybody in my family knows that we go to therapy and we still do and we love it and there's no secrets or anything and she knows we go to therapy and I actually found her a child therapist around 2019 just to make sure because I didn't feel like she was showing any kinds of signs of distress or anything but I just wanted to make sure that since she was getting older that everything was going fine. She didn't have any kind of issues that maybe I wasn't aware of. And so that was when I had told the therapist that this is what we're talking to her about and everything. And she had said, yeah, you know, that that's good. I don't notice anything strange happening with her. She's very good. And that was kind of reassuring on my end too. Like, okay, good. Like everything's fine. I'm doing okay with her. <laughs> Cause I, I tend to be a little bit hypercritical of myself. And so just to have the openness there is really good. And I feel like it makes me really comfortable knowing that things going forward should hopefully continue to be that way. Fantastic. 
It strikes me that she'll also have the comfort of going to therapy if and when she decides she needs it. Because I've seen a lot of people try and get their kids into therapy after issues have gotten really bad, and it often doesn't go well. Especially if the kids are adolescents, which is maybe the worst time to try and start into therapy if it isn't the kid's idea. Adolescents can spend a lot of time in session with arms crossed, closed off, I'm not telling you anything. But if they're familiar with that setting, like this is something we do, then there might be a lot more possibility for healing. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I, I, I just try to be as much on the same page with her as possible with, while still, you know, letting her have her, her childhood. <laughs> Absolutely. And we have to keep in mind that sometimes we're affected by things, especially as little kids, and we aren't even aware of the effects, and nothing shows up from the outside until we hit adolescence, when the brain starts to function in new ways and on another level, and then old experiences can come up in new ways and have unexpected effects. So I'm going to say again, great job in preparing her for life. Thank you. You talked earlier about how you were affected by your own childhood experiences and how this led to codependent traits with your husband, but... Did you notice those traits coming out earlier, perhaps in other relationships? Um, not a lot. Only because, like I said, I was I was a little bit more withdrawn. I almost didn't want to let it get to that point. You know, like I didn't want to even let there be a possibility that that would happen. Just the whole loss. I didn't really come into contact with the term codependency until I started doing more research on addiction and everything. But yeah, I wouldn't even let that become a like a possibility. I did have friends, just not you know a whole lot of them. I got along well with a lot of people, but I never really had anybody that I considered super close, except for maybe like one or two people. And even then, I kind of still tried to have my guard up because. I just didn't want to experience loss of any kind. But for some reason, when I met my husband, it was just different. I don't know. It was just really easy to talk to. And for some reason, I just didn't have that impulsive habit where I would just try to be closed off. And it's almost like he knew that too. Like he would do things intentionally that would make me be more open because he would point little things out like, you know, you don't have eye contact with people or you don't, you know, you, your posture is very closed off or this, just little things like that. I'm like, wow, like I didn't even notice that, but I would intentionally do things like that to keep myself closed off from people. And even when I did have friends, you know, I didn't want to have really deep conversations or, or really show them that I cared that much, as sad as that sounds. But that's not really how I want it to be. But that was just, you know, in my rational mind, that's just how I thought things should be in order to keep myself safe. It's a very sad and lonely way to live. We'll hear more about how Ashley moved out of that loneliness after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back. Let's hear the rest of Ashley's interview. It's really striking to hear you talking about being so closed off and avoiding vulnerability. And then to see you today intentionally putting your story out there so vulnerably as you have been in this conversation (laughs) and really allowing people into your experience. How did you make that change? It's the same thing that I went through with that, you know, like I had gone through my whole life trying all these different things to keep people closed off. And I just got to a point where like I couldn't do it, you know, like if I wanted to continue to be friends with this person, you know, my husband, <laughs> but at the time, you know, this person, like I couldn't, I couldn't continue to be closed off. Like it just wasn't going to work. And I had seen the benefit of our friendship to where like, okay, well, I don't want to let this go. I'm going to, I'm going to clearly have to change. And it was like that through the years of his addiction, I would try, and I'm pretty sure I tried really everything I could think of and nothing was working except for the one thing that I didn't want to do, which was actually realize that I 
had a problem and I was contributing all these negative things to our relationship. And there was only one thing that I hadn't done yet, which was focus on myself. And everybody always says that you always hear it everywhere, even in the context of just, you know, normal life outside of addiction, you hear it in Narana meetings. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean to focus on yourself? Okay. I'm thinking about myself. Okay. Well, my loved one is still suffering. What does that mean? But I learned that, you know, I had to focus on myself in terms of my actions, my behaviors, my beliefs, my mindset, the way I was thinking about things, just the way that I operated as a whole within the context of his addiction, you know, like I wanted to be a savior, can't do that. I wanted to have the answers to everything, can't do that. I wanted to be a people pleaser, you know, and, and make sure that I was doing, you know, what other people thought I should do. Oh, you should do this. Okay, yeah, sure. You know, or you're, you know, if that was me, I wouldn't let that slide. I would, I would have done this. Okay, cool, I'll do that. Or, you know, let's try home detoxing. Let's try this rehab. I'm gonna find you this one. Here's a credit card so that you never go without anything or whatever. Because I had thought that that's how I support him. I know now that's enabling, but even when I knew what enabling was, I still didn't want to label it that. Well, look, you don't understand. This situation's different. I just really care about him. But, you know, then I would get resentful at the fact that I was doing all these things that would enable him. And so finally I was like, okay, you know, to myself, look, I've tried everything. I've tried everything. We've done everything, you know, everything, every option that, you know, I said, oh, I'll try that next time. I've done every single thing and nothing has changed. If anything, things are getting worse. This is like the worst I've ever seen, way worse than things were when I first met him. It was just insane. The only thing I hadn't done was actually put up firm boundaries that I myself believed in and that I made according to how I felt and what I wanted, you know, in my life, not just because some person had told me that I should do it, and I actually started working on myself, things that I noticed weren't helping me. Negative mindsets, negative beliefs, the fact that I had no hope for the future and things that I would do, you know, like not keeping resentments, not making him into this terrible, awful person and realizing like, okay, I am incredibly stressed out. What can we do to help that? What are ways that I can decompress? What are ways that'll make me more independent? And I would go through many versions of this. At the end of a cycle of active use, he would be like, okay, I'm gonna go to rehab. And I would of course be very sad because I would miss him. And so it would be like, you know, a week or so of that. And then finally, you know, I would be able to talk to him on the phone. I'd know that he was okay. And I'm like, okay, cool. I have some time to myself now where I don't have to be worried that, you know, I'm eventually gonna get the phone call that something happened to him. So, you know, I'm gonna start doing stuff for myself. You know, I would, take some time to meditate. I would take some time to start, you know, a workout plan up again, because I know that it makes me feel a lot better and puts me in a better mindset. I would start hanging out with friends and family and I would start doing more things for myself. And then he would come back and then I would fall right back into the same cycle. But this last time I actually took it seriously. I, you know, did as much as I could to build myself up as an independent person without having to rely on him so much for all of my emotional needs. And I would make sure to keep it up, you know, like even when we were in contact a lot more and even when he was like, you know, thinking about moving back in, I was like, no, I don't think it's the right time right now. We still need to you know, live apart. And through all that time, I was focused on me first and foremost, me, how am I feeling? What am I doing? Okay. Cause if I'm not hundred percent, I'm just going to go right back where I was. And I knew I did not want to go there. And so like now it's a lot easier because you know, if you get in the habit of doing something, if you do it for long enough, it becomes second nature. And so now I don't find myself going into those previously held beliefs and, and all that, the bad habits that I would have before, you know, I just realized that like, I had to get to that breaking point. Like that was my rock bottom <laughs> to where I realized like, okay, this is what I need to do to move forward. And I can't do this anymore. I can't keep thinking that there's going to be one thing that I haven't done yet. Like, this is it. Well, that's such an important realization. You touch on something there that I want to highlight. Again, codependency is a loosely defined term. Some people look at that set of behaviors or traits as being their own compulsion or even call it an addiction in its own right. Did those codependent behaviors feel compulsive to you? I don't know. It took me a long time to even identify with the word codependent because it was something that to me seemed like negative. Like, I don't want another negative term. I don't believe in that. But as I would read about it and stuff, I kind of did acknowledge like, okay, yeah, I do see these behaviors coming out in me in my own life. 
I don't know. It's like hard to explain because like I had had those behaviors for so long and they would still come into play in different ways, maybe not like before in my life with him. But it just got to a point where like I just saw how those actions and behaviors played out and how they just like intertwined or became overlapping with other things I was doing. And I was just, I, I just could not live that way any longer. And I thought it was going to be something that I had for the rest of my life. I thought it was just going to be a part of me that existed. And like, I was just going to have to manage it. But at the end, I just was able to see the behaviors and stuff for what they were without giving it a label. And that's what ended up making me able to kind of fix it, so to speak, or at least like work on it and, you know, identify it and be able to, to change it into a new way of living and have different habits that would help me to be able to succeed in that. Because for me personally, if I find out that I have like a label of something, I will like dive headfirst into it. Like, okay, I have codependency. Finally, I accepted it. I'm going to get as many books on codependency as possible. But then, you know, I would just find myself obsessed in a way or hyper-focused on that label. And that would end up kind of working against me. So in working the steps, because I did work the steps too with my sponsor, I found, you know, different parts of myself that I wanted to change for the better. And so I didn't really write like codependency. I would just write different things that I did, you know, like keeping people at a distance, isolating, different things like that. And it would kind of like help me to, you know, be more vulnerable, you know, to not put a bunch of walls up, to allow people in that I feel like help me as a person and they, you know, help me feel supported and help me feel loved and help to give me the strength to, you know, want to grow as a person and keep going and stuff. And it was, it was more like that where I was able to just separate from the actual label itself and just work on different aspects of myself as a whole. And then it kind of just naturally evolved into where I am now, where I don't feel like I identify with the codependency term anymore at least not as much as I used to. Now you talked about going through the cycles of addiction in your marriage. Did you find yourself learning things with each cycle or deepening your understanding and experience? And if so, can you talk about that? Yeah, so I feel like every time a cycle happened, I would learn more things. And it was usually when he was gone. I would learn more things about myself when he was in rehab. But it sucks, but every time he came back, then I would just immediately fall back into that like okay I'm gonna work on myself while he's gone he's gonna work on himself while he's gone and we're gonna come back and then he's gonna be fine and then I don't have to work on it anymore because like I'm not dealing with him as an active addict so you know it's fine as long as he's doing what he's doing I don't really need to work on myself anymore (laughs) and that doesn't work because then I wouldn't be able to be a healthier version of myself which would then just cause this terrible dynamic and i did learn eventually like okay it's not my fault i know that but if i still poke at him with all these resentments that i have and all these expectations and stuff it's not exactly setting the best foundation for our relationship outside of the addiction let alone with that too you know like i learned more things in terms of like you know like tricks or whatever like okay you know if he's doing that it means this or if he's doing this it means that but that was kind of things that i tried not to focus on so much towards the end because that really didn't matter it was just looking back now it was mostly just the stuff that i learned about myself like that was what i wished i could carry over and continue on and not so much things i learned with him which I thought was important at the time. I remember one time he was going through a home detox. And so I actually asked him like point blank, you know, like what what should I do if this happens again? Like, you know, I feel like you're in a place to be really open and honest with me. What should I do in this situation? He basically said like, don't do this again. You know, no matter how much I beg and plead with you to do this, don't do this again. This isn't helpful. And I'm like, well, you're right. But what if you're really sad? You know, what if I, <laughs> what if I think it's like really gonna work this time? You know, and I would always have that, but Yeah, just looking back, it's like, I just wish I could have figured it out sooner that like, it's just what I learned about myself. I didn't want to learn any more things to do with him. I didn't want to learn any more, you know, what to do in this situation, what to do in that situation. If he's hiding stuff, it means that he's probably relapsed again or look for these specific signs, these specific substances or whatnot, you know, all the different detective things. Yeah, it was mostly just, you know, keep up with all the healthy things that I had learned while he was gone. I wish I would have learned that a lot sooner and not You know, what option haven't I tried yet? That really illustrates the journey that a lot of people go through in recovery, and not just recovery through a treatment center or a particular recovery fellowship, but 
but recovery in the broadest sense, whether it's directly from addiction or from the effects of someone else's addiction. This can include recovery work, therapy and counseling, helpful books, internal reflection, meditation, spirituality, or whatnot. Now we know that very few people make these kinds of dramatic changes the very first time they try. So we know that statistically speaking, most people with addiction will have a number of attempts before they hit a point where they can sustain sobriety. And that might be treatment centers, times in and out of one recovery fellowship or another, or anything else they try in order to keep the changes up. Knowing that this can be the same process for the loved ones of those with addiction, how many times or cycles did it take before you were ready to say, that's it, I'm planting a flag, I'm doing this for me? Oh man, like way more than I could count, way more than I can count on one hand, maybe even two. <laughs> it took a lot because like, it's good to have hope for the future. But for me, every single time I'm like, okay, well, if this ever happens again, there, I haven't tried these different options for him. You know, we haven't tried detoxing this way, or we haven't tried doing this, or I haven't tried approaching it this way or whatever. But you know, it was always focused on that. It wasn't focused on like what I was doing. So I would just get stuck in the same thing, you know, the same cycle of just like being focused on him. And so it was like him and his use and everything. And so I would just fall back into it every single time. And it, it, it would even happen at different times, just during any one point of his active use or his sobriety. I would just go through so many different phases of like, you know, well, I should do this or, okay, maybe I'll try doing this. And this will be the one thing that saves me, or maybe this will whatever. And I didn't realize, you know, there's not just going to be one thing like, okay, you know, if I just read this one book about recovery, then that's going to help me. And that's going to save me. Like there's just so many things. And, and I would put all of my hope into one specific thing every time. And I would always be let down by it because I, I didn't realize how many things went into it and how much of it was inside of me, you know, like not trying to find comfort and answers and stability and something outside of myself. And so I would just go through all of these things where I just put all of my hope in this one thing that was going to save me and it never did. And when I finally realized that, it was like, I wish I could have figured it out sooner, but I'm glad I figured it out when I did. That was when I realized that there's just so many different things, you know? And it was a lot of work at first to realize that I had all these things. But once I just started going in that direction and wanting to be healthier, wanting to be happier and just having that drive, it made it just so much easier to just continue on that path. You know, like I know there's nothing else I could do for him in that situation. And in that regard, I just have to keep going this way and I can't let it just, you know fizzle out because this is my only option and that's what kept me going and that's what keeps me going to this day that's fantastic you talk about hope and that's so important but there are two types of hope and we want to be able to differentiate between them one is the hope that things can get better and that's what keeps us moving forward mm -hmm. the other type of hope is where we think that we are going to find the magic cure this time, that we are going to be the ones who make things all better, or that I'm going to place all my hope in this new book or the latest treatment center, or whatever the new thing is that we hope will come in like a deus ex machina that finally comes in and saves the day. It's great to hear how you brought the focus back to the hope of working on yourself. It's very powerful. And then um, just as a little funny story, I remember there's a certain daily reader like a date of the Naranon book and I remember reading it and thinking that it was like the craziest thing I've ever heard but then I actually saw it happening in the meeting and then I actually experienced it myself where it was saying you know like this newcomer comes in and you know their partners the worst of the worst they're in jail they're just living on the street you know it's terrible circumstances and they go in and they're like okay this is a room filled with people who are just like me but yet they're in here and they're laughing and they're smiling and they're, you know, talking to each other as if everything's perfect. But like, how are they like that? Like, do you not realize that, you know, we're going through this terrible thing? Like, why are you laughing? But you get to a point where like, you realize that you can still have hope and you can still have happiness and you can still find joy in your life, even if that is happening with your partner. You know, because I used to think that I was just the worst person if I even dared to be happy while he's living a situation like this. But then that would just cause me to just be as sick as he was and as unsupportive as I could be. You know, it wasn't until I was able to get to a point of being happier and healthier and being more able to live that I was actually a good 
support for him. And that wasn't because I was trying to be, it just happened that way naturally. You know, like I was able to do all the things that I wanted to do before. Once I came from a different point of not doing it just for him, I was doing it for me and I could then do it for him as an extension of that. And so like when you realize, like he said, the different types of hope, if you can have a hope that things will get better while you're still doing things for yourself, you don't put all this reliance on finding your comfort in this other person and their success. It's your success that you can then extend to other people and you're able to be a better person for yourself and for them. Beautifully put. I really appreciate you talking with us. Mm -hmm. We've covered a lot of ground. Before we close, though, is there anything else you want to say to someone listening to this who might be in a situation similar to where you've been? Yeah, as cliche as it sounds, even though everybody will tell you this, focus on yourself first, put yourself first. That is the most important thing you can do. (laughs) Don't cloud your mind with thinking of all the things that you can do to save your partner or your loved one. Like, Figure out what you need to be healthier and happier and at least content, at least go to a neutral point first and then you can figure it out because then your answers will come to you about how you can actually be a healthy support system to not only your partner, but to anyone else that you care about in your life. Focus on yourself first, turn inward, take care of yourself, nourish yourself on every level. Just make sure that you are good emotionally and then go from there. As hard as that is, like, I just want to just, like, just get that into people's heads. Focus on yourself first and then. Right on. And the last question is, where do people find you to get more of your perspective and follow your journey? I would say the blog first and foremost, because I figured out how to put all of my social media links on the actual blog itself. So that is ashleyspeaksup.com. So from there, there's, you know, the videos, the blog, the podcast, the social media links, the this, the that, everything. That's kind of like the main hub of everything. So, but I mean, if you were to find me on social media, that, that does have the link for the blog too. But I would just say for ease, the blog, ashleyspeaksup.com. And from there, you can get everything else. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for coming out and being on our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. It was fun. (laughs) And that's our interview with Ashley. If you want more information on her and her work, go to ashleyspeaksup.com. If you want more information about Naranon, go to nar-anon.org. That's N-A-R-A-N-O-N dot O-R-G. All right. See you next time. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction and the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey. <laughs>